Josie and Johnny are having a baby with you. With you. I'm Josie Long. And I'm Johnny Donahoe. We're both British comedians who live in Britain's London. And we are also a happily not married, but very much together couple expecting a baby. Yes, it's beautifully bread. Josie and Johnny are having a baby. Why aren't we married? Expecting our first child. Should we? Should we? Um, we're just. It's we're, late. The, the horse has already bolted. Right. Fine. We're we're very happy. We love each other. I love you. That's awkward, isn't it? Saying that if you're British. But um, this show is about um, us trying to make sense of the fact that we're about to become parents uh, a little unexpectedly. And let's be honest, we don't know anything. No, we're clueless. We're really clueless. So we thought we'd talk to some of the people that we like the most in the world. You'll know them, probably, um, as a famous person. And we're going to talk to them as... Parents. Yeah. Our first guest is John Hodgman, who is a uh, comedian, writer, actor. He's a renaissance man. He's a delight. You might know John Hodgman from his books. His books are fantastic. You might know him from his podcast. Judge Dirt. John Hodgman. Judge John Hodgman. And you might just know him because he has been funny in everything good in the last 15 years on television. Community, Parks and Recreation, Bored to Death, Portlandia... Is he in Portlandia? <laughs> You're just saying any of I'm just saying shows now. Yeah. If he's not in it, they should write him in. Um, <laughs> John Hodgman has uh, two teenage children. He's also, to my mind, somebody who is incredibly well-read and wise uh, and gentle with that as well. So somebody that, if I was thinking of getting the lowdown on something, I'd like to consult him. As a, a an expectant dad, which I am... I um, I don't know whether you can say you're expectant, because it makes it sound like you're doing something now. Which I'm not. Apart not from physically. Well, I bring you, you things. That's true. So You do all the washing up. I do all the washing up and I f- rub your feet, but not as often as you want. Thank you for adding that. I appreciate your... Um, honesty. The reason for that is that you want your foot rubbed more than there is hours, hours in, in the, the day. day. Oh, I, yeah. I mean, if, if that were possible. Also, I tell you what you did do when you sort of. I think when it started to hit home for you that everything was real. Sure. As I've got into the third trimester, what I've seen you do is a very particular type of dad nesting. Yeah. Which is you went to IKEA and you bought plants plastic plants to put in the bathroom well the thing is if i'd bought alive plants for the bathroom they'd have died there's so no I, natural light yeah so um i bought but i mean very I, smart do you think what i'm essentially doing is the very early part of uh child raising which is i'm, I'm trying to keep a plant alive absolutely but i bought a dead plant <laughs> no you've bypassed it you've bought an immortal plant as a statement that you couldn't possibly harm it and also what you did was you've gone and you've bought loads of plants and little chairs throughout the front <laughs> of the house and a very large barbecue 
Yeah, we've got a tiny little yard at I the mean, front of our flat, our apartment. The yard is generous. Yeah, yard. It, it's an offcut. <laughs> it's it could be a parking space. Yeah. Well, it couldn't. It's not big enough to no, be a parking. Be not by American standards. It. Yeah, you wouldn't be able to get a British car in either. <laughs> you could park a motorbike. Yeah. And um, you could also and have room to dismount. Yes. So. Or a horse. Or oh, you could park a pony. You could park a good-sized pony, but not a stallion. Exactly. Um, so I, anyway, what he's done is he's gone and he's bought loads of chairs and uh, a little metal table. And at first, I remember thinking, like, we haven't we haven't got a change table yet. You know, there's so many things we don't have yet. Mm. What are you doing? But what you've done is you've created a little outside room for the summer. Yep. I think these are proto-parenting. I've increased the number of rooms in our flat by one. And what what kind of dad do you think you're going to be? Do you think you're going to be fun? Or do you think you're going to be stern? Are I'm you not, going to be hands-on? I, I'm, going to, I'm not going to be stern because I don't know how to be stern. So I'm not a strict person on any level. Sure, but you are British and you can say, come now. <laughs> Shut up, Charles. Exactly. <laughs> right, things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Should we call the baby Charles? No. Right. Veto. <laughs> Fine. Um, well, I don't know. I mean, uh, John Hodgman is a um, uh, is a sort of man who I I can't imagine is anything other than the most wonderful and wise dad. Yeah. Like he he seems to sort of. But he's somebody who I could imagine when you're five or six, you might think he were more serious than he is. Because he's somebody that could seem quite formal in demeanour, but he's actually very silly. I think that's because he's quite well-dressed. Yeah. Whereas so we I'm, don't have that issue. I'm more slobby, <laughs> and that I think the kids are going to really enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> um, one thing we should say before the show starts is, if you're listening with your children, I don't think we swear and so I don't we think do sh- all the time but it might not be in it anymore that's right i don't think there's going to be any swearing you need to worry about but we do discuss an issue an issue um uh, saint nicholas father christmas santa claus if if your kids are listening we might discuss something about that character that they don't need to know yet. Once I was on a radio show and I really, like, I thought I was being like Johnny Rotten. I was like, by the way, guys, um, Santa, I've got a few things to say. It's a bit of a joke (laughs) because I thought the radio show was being played at 11pm. Never have I received more complaints and more kind of moral admonishment of, like, you monster Mm. so there is that discussion later in the show and we need to flag it because if you are listening with your children there are things they don't need to hear that's right okay let's just get right into it here is our chat with the one and only john hodgman Hello. Hello. Hello, mate. My favorite parents to be. Oh, <laughs> thank you. That's very kind. I just don't know any other pregnant couples at the moment. Oh, right. So okay, it's, sure. <laughs> it's it's <laughs> rather by default. But I'm pretty confident that you would be definitely in the top five no matter what. Oh, thanks, man. Well, we'll take anything. Can we ask you, how many children do you have and how old are they? I, I am a father of two. Daughter and a son, and I have no idea what their ages are. (laughs) I spent some time yesterday actually trying to remember if my daughter was 15 or 16. Oh, wow. Uh, I should say our daughter, too, because I am married and we we co-parent together. Mm. 
Whereas when I say my daughter, it does sound like I'm a sad divorced dude. <laughs> but I am a I am a happily married weird dad <laughs> of 46 years old. Our daughter is either 15 or 16. I have my brain is erasing her memory because the reality of her age is that is such that I know that within about two seconds she'll be 18 and out of the house. So I yeah. I revise her age backwards a lot. And our son is 12. And he is he is rather worldly and rather wise. He has access to the internet. Oh no! Yeah, you know, and it's it's very. Uh, uh, this is a, a subject for another podcast. Oh yeah, well, because I, I really did want to talk about this because I'm scared of them being exposed to certain things, particularly online. I don't know how to protect them, but I also don't want to be a parent who's like, this is my son, uh, th this is my daughter, she's five years old, she only likes the Clash and Sonic Youth. Because she doesn't, she's a kid. Right, yeah, mm. no, I mean, that. I think, you're, I think your anxiety is, is actually um, bifurcated between two topics. One is, how do we protect... Uh, our children from the monstrosities of the internet, yes, which is real, but won't be an issue in your life until your children are a fair bit older. I mean, mm. it's like with a, the decision of when you first put a screen into their hands, if you're going to do that is a big one, but it's not one that they can make for themselves for at least five years, I would say. Is that quite a political decision amongst peer groups? Like are some people so anti and some people so pro? Right. And that's that's one issue, right? But then the other issue is, uh, you can start m putting Sonic Youth t-shirts on your kid at age five weeks and living in <laughs> living in Park Slope, Brooklyn, as I do, you see a lot of, of that kind of um, it's not re-education. It's pre-education, <laughs> a cultural pre-education. But it is as dictatorial as cultural re-education mm. was in Maoist China. <laughs> it's like you, you are shoving your taste <laughs> Onto your children, quite literally, like you're shoving a shirt onto them before <laughs> yeah. they even know, before they, they will ever listen to a, a Misfits album. There are people who put them in Misfits t-shirts. You're This is what dads do mm. in order to convince themselves that they're still young, relevant, and cool dads. Yeah. Rather than accepting the fact that this thing that they've created is the first step that is that is their replacement as they are ushered to its death. Mm. So I hope that clarifies things. My no. position, anyway. No, no, it's fair. Those sort of dads who, um, my five-year-old loves the Pixies. They really get it. It's right. like, wow. The Pixies is one of my favorite bands. Mm. Yeah, I love but, but But no, not for little kids, because that is that is rage music designed for, well, specifically – designed uniquely for me at age 15. <laughs> I've spoken to Black Francis about this. He acknowledged, yes, it was all for you. Yeah, that's fine. We're glad we reached some other people, but we really did have you in mind, John. Did you have an idea before you became a dad of the kind of dad persona you wanted to adopt? Was it something that you, like, grew into or was it something that you suddenly realised you were? I... I... No, I had no idea of a dad persona uh, um, because I I wanted kids in the abstract, but I did not want them specifically. Huh. Uh, mm. I am an only child, um, and I was the center of the universe, and everything revolved around my personal experience. So the idea of sharing my existence so intimately, intimately with other humans was a hard thing for me to get over 
and, and even before I met the woman who had become my wife, and she is a middle child of three, um, and, and basically instructed me, we, we, do you want to have children? I'm like, yeah, someday. She's like, well, it's happening now. And, <laughs> and then she turned around and had a baby in her arms. I don't know how it happened. Yeah. You guys. It's pretty amazing. I mean, I've read, I've read some stuff about how, how babies are made. That's not how it worked for us at all. It just showed up today. <laughs> it's definitely her genetic baby because we had it tested, but I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I really went into it with very, very neutral and, and, uh, and, and with a lot of apprehension about what this was going to mean in terms of obviously disturbing our mm -hmm. lives together, my wife and mine, and, and my, my life as an only lifelong only child member of the super smart, afraid of conflict narcissist club. And, um, so I, I had to learn as I went along. And I think that that was a benefit to me because I didn't have preconceptions or things that I had to live up to. Do you know what I mean? Why, what kind of dad do you want to be, Johnny? Um, the kind of dad I want to be is consistent. And I mean that in every sense. Obviously, there will be days when I am unable to stick with that. But I think I am most marked uh, by my dad's absence. Um, that's That was his relationship with me was, mm -hmm. was, was disappearance. And so... The thing that I really want to be is is always there and always available. Um, but I want my daughter, if it is a daughter, we assume it's a daughter because the sonographer, the faith healer who um, <laughs> who checked for us, thinks it's a daughter, but we don't yet know. Are all certain. doctors and scientists faith healers? To you? Uh, in in Britain, the UK, yeah. <laughs> it's a new policy. You know, the oh, right, the conservative the, government. The NHS <laughs> That's right. All obstetricians are, are now crystal ball gazers. That's right. <laughs> right? It's, yeah, what they do is they try and polish up your bump to see if they can make it <laughs> shine. Yeah. yeah. And then they can divine that you need to eat more iron. Let me scry your belly. <laughs> <laughs> So, sorry. Lisa. Okay, so you were saying, Johnny, I apologize. I think I, I, I'd like to get to a point where my daughter thinks of me in the same breath as she does Josie. Like, uh, as in, um, Josie's such a wonderful, warm, oh, kind, too nice to me. Um, brilliant person. Uh, our daughter is Not obviously really. going to adore her and want her, and there's going to be long periods of time where she's going to want mum the most, and that's fine. I'm, I'm not going to mm -hmm. have any issue with that. I'm, I'm very relaxed and calm about that. But I, I want to get to a point where there's a, like, she, she's like, oh, I, I feel the same way about my dad. He didn't, he didn't birth me. He didn't grow me. Uh, he's made me no milk, but he's done other stuff that's made me think he's okay. Yeah. Well, you have a lot of um, personal and intimate time with your baby yep. that will help that baby bond to you for sure. Mm. I think that your definition of your of the fatherhood that you aspire to is perfect. I mean, you know, my worst fear. You almost got there, Johnny. But my worst fear was you were going to say, "I want to be the kind of father my dad wasn't." Oh no! Which you came, but you you identified a specific thing, which he wasn't around as much, and you have the honor and privilege to be around more. Yeah, that's good. But anybody who says I want to be the kind of dad who blank, or I want to be the I want to be the opposite of my dad, already is working at a weird a weird ego level that is not conducive to decent fathering never mind parenting sure. in general how yeah. do people put aside that baggage though like because <laughs> i think a lot about that like i think oh gosh like yeah lots of things in my childhood i really wish uh hadn't happened and and lots of 
you know, I spent a lot of my teenage years especially being like, I'm never going to be like them. I'm never going to do this and stuff like that. And you're like, how do you get that negativity out of your mindset? Look, all parents make mistakes, right? And all kids eventually become teenagers and they and they don't like those mistakes. But I do think knowing the mistakes and uh, analyzing the mistakes your parents made and how they made you feel, that's okay. I mean, that's a good that's a good tool to have. Like when you can stop yourself and say, "Oh, I sound like my dad or I sound like my mom." And think about what that means. That's good that's a good thing to do. I, I just have this vision of like looking in 40 years in the future or 30s in the future, there being this grand reckoning and it coming down to something that I thought was really innocuous. Like, and I've, you know, I'm carrying around with this like, I really messed up when I did this, that, the other. And they're actually like, on the 15th of June, 2025, yeah. <laughs> you served beans. <laughs> and that will be the turning point. I, it could be. That's exactly the. That's exactly the truth. It's like I, you know, if you you think back on on those things that really stick with you about your about your relationship with your parents, and it it often hinges on a, you know, the smallest thing. I don't know. You you could you could be in for a surprise for sure, but there's no preventing it from happening. You just have to do your best. Yeah. Does that help? Yeah, Yeah, it does. It does. It's so... (laughs) Yeah. Uh, We'll have more on that in just a second. But first, let's take a little quick break. Hello, welcome back. Uh, We're back from the break. Okay, this is a question I have for you, which is uh, we're very much prepared for the fact that when the baby comes, the first six months are going to be intense and difficult and brutal and whirlwindish and all kinds of things. And then, you know, people say, oh, well, you know, and then you get your rhythm and it gradually gets easier and you sort of, they learn new things and you have an easier time with them. But what I want to know is, do you feel like there was a time when your kids were a particular age that you were like, this is the sweet spot of parenting? Or do you feel like, it? Like, like, does it get progressively easier? Is it always like new challenges, new challenges? Like, how does it work as they get a bit older? Well, hang on, I have to think about this for a second. <laughs> I'm sorry, that was like 10 <laughs> questions as well. It was like, okay, listen, I'm going to preload this. It's 20 pieces of information. <laughs> All right, here's the deal. I'm speaking from my experience only and my observed experience uh, living in a in a colony of parents who all lived in the same apartment building when our kids were all kind of the same age. You are not prepared because it is biologically, psychologically, time management logistically unlike anything that you've ever experienced before. It's unpredictable because the thing you have to remember and is very hard is that this baby, it is a complete and unique meld of your genetic material and its own whatever it is that makes it an individual human being that's going to burp and fart and think and laugh and cry at all kinds of different things. So all the advice that I could give you based on my experience is to some degree useless because 
my children are different than yours, and frankly, mine are the good ones. <laughs> <laughs> and, so, and I'm giving this is good news to you because truly, like some of these babies, I'll know. No one ever wants to say this, but there are good babies and there are bad babies. Mm. <laughs> and so all, all, all human beings have dignity and deserve love. Sure. And, and babies are wonderful in their own way. And even the bad babies are, are a delight. But some are more challenging than others. Some have colic. Some, are, some have bad attitudes. Some will steal from you. That's the other thing. Some babies are born natural pickpockets. Watch out. <laughs> but honestly, how do you know if you've got a good baby? Well, it doesn't matter because it's the baby you get. I mean, that's the whole. <laughs> I think you'll know if you have a bad one. If you have one that just won't sleep, that is really, really temperamental and hard, and no one's got no one's got the secret formula. And the whole experience of early parenthood, and I would say all of parenthood, is getting is essentially acceptance of what whatever it is, it is right. Yeah, and I don't want to sound like. One of your faith healer surgeons, one of your woo-woo <laughs> non-medical <laughs> practitioners out there, I am burning a little sage at this moment and writing this on a piece of paper that I'm going to throw out into the universe. But, you know, as they develop, certain things get easier, but then certain things get harder. Like, it's hard to carry around that baby all the time. But once that baby is walking around, that baby might hail a cab and 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 yeah go to Paris. You don't know what that baby's going to do. <laughs> but that's a new, a new kind of terrifying. And this is not going to comfort you, but I do think it's the most honest thing I can say is that with each relief comes a new kind of terror. And you just live <laughs> you live I mean, you live in a state of amazement at these creatures and terror for their safety for the rest of your life. It's the sublime. It's the true sublime. Yeah. Terror and well, I was, beauty. I was talking about I was talking about having having a bloodline that you can pass your estate onto. <laughs> That's the most important. Sure, sure. So, you know, maintain control of your family lands. Of course, and titles. And create allegiances with other great families. That's why you have children. <laughs> I was going to ask, did you, were there any things that you sort of thought that you would do as a parent? For example, like, I'm going to teach the Mandarin from mm. day five that you didn't end up doing. No. I mean, if anything, I feel <laughs> we had, you know... The language thing, honestly, kids, when kids are learning to speak, that's their best chance to learn another language. Uh, and it is a huge advantage when you think in practical terms of putting them out into the world, of them being able to speak another language. I made the mistake of teaching them Esperanto from an early age, and that did not work <laughs> out. But I don't feel that guilty about it because they, you know, they, they, you, you've put enough in front of them that they will find their own interests my mum told me i was very musical uh without any grounds for that being the case from a very very early age and it made me when i came to learn the piano really like go i've i've got to really work hard because i had this sort of feeling that i was gonna um, I had to. She kept telling me I was really musical, and I was sitting at the piano, finding it really hard. And I was like, "Oh, I better, I better really work right. hard at this, so that she thinks it's innate." I mean, not that I thought that I wouldn't have been able to have uh, put that thought across so clearly when I was six. But I remember thinking, "I've got to really push this." She was trying to compliment you, yeah, and instead she created an expectation in you that created anxiety once you actually sat down and played the piano. Except, you know, the two things, my, my mom was like, you have to learn the piano and you have to learn French. And then 
when I came out of college, uh, the, the, one of those things is true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and when I came out of college, I, I all of my jobs I got were through those two skills that I'd actually really worked at. So yeah. I, I, I feel like this real mixture of like, it was definitely a lot of anxiety, but also I'm really lucky to have those skills. Oh yeah, for sure. And that's the, that's the challenging part too, because, uh, y you know, these are issues that you're not going to be dealing with for a few years. Do you know what I mean? Cause yeah. babies rarely play the piano. <laughs> I mean, my, my, my son at age nine months was totally, you know, watching the Godfather tri trilogy, but that's a different story. <laughs> and the, the balancing act between b being one of these hovering, you're going to memorize the 1000 best films in the American Film Institute library or whatever I'm interested in, do you know, versus <laughs> sort of letting, letting go and letting them de develop their own interests it, it is, is hard, especially when it comes to if their own interests lead to things that really require instruction, repetition, mm. and practice. Mm. And that's a struggle that we're kind of having with my son because he likes music but wants no musical instruction and, and refuses to practice. He's pretty good at it, but he could be – you know, he needs – if he were ever to follow through on it, he would be better at it. And, like, he wants to build a computer. And I love the fact that his attitude is entirely like, I can do it. He never talks himself out of anything. But on the other hand, I don't want him to burn the house down with a soldering sure, iron. Like, sure. There, there are things like teaching him that there are things that require in, instruction from an outside authority that, that there is no, I just feel like it, that there is, I have to learn to do it. That's a hard, that's a hard thing. But that's, again, this is, he's age 12. That's when that happens. So you don't have to worry about that for a bit. Uh, hold that thought. We need to take a little break. We'll be right back. Josie and Johnny are having a baby. We're back. We're back. Hooray! It is also good to hear and talk about later stages of childhood and adolescence and stuff mm. like that because it it just kind of takes you out of the short-sightedness of like, well, the first week after the baby is born, I won't be sleeping, you know, which feels so <laughs> needlessly massive and it's not. Totally. I mean, on my popular podcast, the Judge John Hodgman podcast, available at MaximumFun.org, where people write in... <laughs> Write in and call in with disputes that I that I arbitrate. Yeah. Listen to both sides. I say who's right and who's wrong. I'm the judge. A lot of topics come up around parenting. Well, there's this one there's this one dad who is convinced that his seven year old is a huge James Bond fan, and the wife is like, "Please don't show him Casino Royale." Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. That's a move. That's a movie in in which the main character is is has his genitals tortured. Sure. Uh, <laughs> And the dad's like, no, my son loves James Bond. I'm like, no, your seven-year-old does not love James Bond. Your seven-year-old loves you. Yeah. You know, your seven-year-old your seven-year-old loves cars that turn into other things for sure. Sure. I mean, who doesn't? Right. But but and that's why Ian Fleming also wrote Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Yeah. <laughs> Did he? I, I, yeah. I think it's a stretch to say that your seven-year-old loves loves you know. 
12-year-old level sexual innuendo and, uh, and objectification of women. That's something that he's learning from these movies and from your uh, your yeah. love of them. So maybe think twice about that. Maybe wait till he's 12 and thinking about these things. <laughs> like, you know. Roald Dahl wrote the screenplay of Chitty Chitty uh, Bang Bang. And, right. And um, I, I, Roald Dahl is the, the author I have the least uh, love for of the mm. children's canon not because I mean, he writes beautifully uh but his the the sort of the nastiness of his person and his politics come through those books so clearly my niece who's seven adores charlie and the chocolate factory so much because it's a book about chocolate and children and yet really what it is is it's a book about um a little boy who's so extremely poor uh because uh this weirdo who runs the only industry uh fires his father and everyone in the entire town and right, hires, to enslave to enslave uh these people uh, from the uh british colony uh, to come over and work for cocoa nuts instead of money, and so I, I, I'm, I think what you said there is really helpful because I'm, if you introduce things at the right time, you can. Um, Oh, I don't want uh, my kid to ever watch the sort of the misogyny of James Bond without sort of knowledge that whilst this might be fun, it's awful. Um, and I don't want them to be able to read Roald Dahl without a sort of feeling of, eh, let's also bear in mind there's other issues here, but maybe it's fine to sort of teach those things at different stages. But part of me thinks with Roald Dahl is, read it when you're five, don't look at it again. Don't need to worry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's that done. But what's instilled into you from that? That's sure. my worry. It's like what I, I, I'm a socialist. Um, I'm a feminist. Those things are really important to me. But they didn't. I had to arrive at them. It would have been really uh, helpful to have uh, been taught those and not had to sort of reprogram myself from all the bullshit I was given as a child and all the things that I grew up around me in Britain in the 1980s. I would love to instill into my child a sense of the the the, the views that 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 I think are right through the literature and the fun without really just shoving a load of stuff down their throat. I'd like them to read beautiful stories that at the end of the day don't add up to saying things like, or um, capitalism is the greatest thing that ever happened or women are bad. Yeah, no, I think that um, I, uh, I would say that by the time you might be reading, and obviously, first of all, you have a choice about the culture that you, that you give to your children. That is, you know, they will choose culture for themselves. They're, once they're out into school, culture will be available to them one way or the other. Kids will teach them about certain TV shows or other or comics or whatever it is. Like, but when they're when you're basically up until age five, six or seven or so, if I remember correctly, you know, you really are their their conduit to the world. So you're you, basically it's the greatest DJ set you'll ever have a chance to play because <laughs> you know you're making a mixtape for of. For, that will guide their whole lives. And you don't want to do it in a, you don't want to be one of those awful, snobby teaching DJs who are like, no, I'm going to play you the most, you know, the, the most obscure track of all time, sure. <laughs> you know, and you're going to hate it. But that's the point. Like, you got to play the hits, right? To get them on the floor. Sure. But, but th- that is an opportunity to give your, gif- your kid all these gifts of things that you loved and the your observations on them now as an adult you don't want to do it i think it would be totally appropriate if you chose to sh- to share charlie and the chocolate factory with them i think it would be inappropriate to do it as son i'm going to teach you deconstructive marxist literary <laughs> theory today 
<laughs> or daughter. Sorry. <laughs> you don't teach that to a girl. <laughs> but if you're, but if you're <laughs> exactly. But if you're, if you're in the midst of some piece of culture that you're sharing with them, and you see something weird or problematic, and you say in a non didactic way, but it's like that's weird or problematic, isn't it? Like the fact that those Oompa Loompas are slaves. What do you think about that? You know, it's like you don't create a curriculum. You you yeah. just try to be honest at every turn. Hmm. Right? And, like, this is the one that comes up. Like, is Santa Claus real? And my wife and I had a big argument about this. Sure. And I said, we should not say that Santa Claus is real. That's a lie. Yeah. I think it's the only mistake my wife has ever made. She can, she said, no, I think we should we should do it. I grew up believing that Santa was real, and it was fun. I'm like, all right, let's give it a try. And then at some point, I was at the Daily Show Christmas party. I'm on television. I was never supposed to be. I'm having. I'm singing Fairy Tale of New York with Paul Rudd. It's a true fairy tale of New York. It really is. It's yeah. Like, how could how could this get better? There's no way it's going to become horribly worse. Get a phone call. <laughs> it's my wife who stayed home because our daughter was little at the time, and I can hear my daughter crying in the background. She said it happened. I'm like, what happened? She said. She asked if Santa Claus was real or was just your parents, like the kids at school are telling her. And I asked her if she really, really, really wanted to know the truth. And she said yes, and I did. And now she is basically mourning the death of a family member. Oh, Oh, no. What did Paul Rudd do? (laughs) I don't know. It all faded into the back. They all went off and continued to party without me because I had to sit there and and talk with my my wife, who herself was traumatized. You know, it was not what she expected to have happen. But it really crystallized for me what I think is true about what you, know, what, what you talk about with your kids, how you talk about it with them. I think you owe them honesty about the world. You owe them your honesty about how you see the world, but you don't need to make a huge deal out of it because they just really just want to eat and play. So it'll sit in their minds. They'll, they'll get back to it later. Thank John, you so thank you much. so much. I look forward to uh, meeting this perfect child. Thanks so much. Enjoy your baby. Thank Thank you, John. It was so great to talk with John, and I really hope you enjoyed the interview as much as we did. And thanks so much for listening. Uh, You can find us personally at my website is josielong.com, and I update it very seldom. I'm on Twitter at josielong, although I've recently locked down the account, so it will take you a while before you can follow me, thus make it all the more exclusive. Uh, you can follow me uh, at Johnny Donahoe uh, on Twitter. I'm not locked at all. Um, no. Lack of interest. Free and easy. Free and easy. Um, you can go to my website, johnnydonahoe.co.uk, and um, you can find out what I was up to in 2014 when I last checked that. Um, maybe I'll update we it in the to, near future. We need to get on it, but we're British. It's a very uh, difficult line to tread. What, being British? <laughs> yeah, it's a real... It's, a real it's very of... hard to be British and proactive about yourself because we're, we're innately very sort of humble and uh, very uncomfortable pushing ourselves. So it's, it's hard work. And of course, you can follow John on Twitter. He is at Hodgman and his podcast is so great and so funny. Judge John Hodgman at MaximumFun.org. Also, make sure you go to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating and review us positively if you enjoy the show. This show was produced by Ruth Barnes and Laura Sheeter from Chalk and Blade for Stitcher, with special thanks to Stephanie Kariuki and Laura Mayer. And we are Josie and Johnny. And we're having a baby. With you.
Stitcher.